for Kamloops Computer Center. You're listening to Inside Politics on Radio NL. Once again, here's Shane Woodford. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, welcome to Inside Politics. It's an overcast day here in Kamloops. Uh, we got a lot to dive into today. Uh, we're pretty happy to welcome uh, my first guest to the show, Public Safety Minister uh, and Solicitor General Mike Farnworth. Mike, you there? You can hear me? Oh, there you are. I can hear you, Mike. How are you? I am great, thanks. Good. Uh, okay, so Mike, uh, a lot of t- a lot of things to tackle uh, with you, and just to give you a fair heads up, I believe we have uh, we have at least Vaughn Palmer on the line as well. He wants to listen in. I think we may have lost Keith again. Okay. Anyway, Mike, uh, just to give you a heads up, both Vaughn and Keith are probably listening in. Uh, so, Mike, uh, off the top, I'm sure you're aware that here in Kamloops, we're dealing with uh, a big increase in in uh, in criminal activity, uh, especially gun violence. So there's something like a 60% increase year over year, uh, including a pretty crazy shootout that grabbed uh, national headlines here about a month ago. Uh, that's prompted City Hall's hunt for some more Mounties to kind of deal with the problem. So, Mike, what kind of assurances uh, can you offer this local community about uh, how your government's going to help them tackle crime and, and perhaps, if you can, pave the way to get some more Mounties here? Uh, there's a number of issues in that we're working on, and you're right. Uh, there is a, a, a crime issue in Kamloops, as there has been in other parts of uh, of the province. Um, I just received the uh, the, uh, the illegal firearms task force report that had 37 37 recommendations in it. Uh, a number of them, a number of them, they're already starting to work on with the uh, the federal government. Uh, others we're looking at in terms of how do we implement over the medium and uh, the short, uh, over the medium and the long term. Um, the report was uh, well received, um, especially in ter- and on issues in terms of more boots on the ground. I mean, that's one of the issues that I've been raising with uh, the federal minister uh, when I've had the opportunity to speak with him. At the, we had a, a uh, federal, provincial, territorial meeting on a number of public safety issues. Uh, the need to get more recruits out of the depot in Saskatchewan uh, is something that I've said because it's not just Camels, but other communities are looking to either fill vacancies or to uh, get more uh, police officers on the ground. So that is very much a priority for us. And what, as far as the timeline, Mike, I, I'm, I, I'm getting all kinds of static in the background there, too. Yeah, I'm hearing on my end as well, so apologies uh, um, on that front. Uh, what kind of a timeline? I mean, I know that Kamloops is not alone here. There's not a detachment in the province. I wouldn't be happy to see some more boots on the ground. So uh, what, as far as getting that to happen, what, what kind of time are we looking what at? What we're saying is, is, look, we are the largest uh, detachment in the country. Uh, we're the one that Ottawa relies on when they need additional resources, and therefore they need to be paying more attention to us in terms of our needs uh, as a province. And so we've been pushing them that, one, we need to get, uh, when we put in a request for additional police officers, we need to get those requests filled. And then the, the second is that um, we, uh, we need to have more recruits coming through the depot, and I think what they need to do is look at expanding that. So that's going to be an ongoing project, um, an ongoing effort to make that happen. In the meantime, um, as I said We've got the, uh, the illegal firearms task force. Uh, we're working on the recommendations on that. We announced some additional resources uh, in the September update budget um, in terms of the, the fentanyl and opioid crisis, additional policing resources, specialized units to tackle uh, the mid-level um, drug trafficking crime, which is you know, uh, a challenge in communities such as Kamloops and Surrey. Um, and other programs and other communities uh, in the province. So it is a priority and it is something that we are working on and we are acutely aware of the needs of uh, places like Kamloops. 
All right. Uh, let's talk about legal marijuana. You made uh, some first official rules this weekend. Minimum age of 19 years old. The BCLDB will be the uh, wholesale distributor, uh, and we're going to get the retail public-private sales model uh, in the new year. Uh, but there's a lot at play here, including uh, tax revenue from legal pot. Now, I know there's going to be negotiations beginning this weekend with the feds. Uh, national media reporting that perhaps the federal government is prepared to move to 80 cents in the dollar for territory and provincial governments. Uh as far as what you want to see, Mike, is, is that kind of in the, in the wheelhouse or no? Um, local government and the province are the ones that are going to be uh, having to deal with the bulk of the issues around legalization. And so we're the ones who should get the bulk of the revenue uh, because there's a lot of work that needs to be done in terms of infrastructure on the ground, in terms of education, on the health side of things, on the enforcement side, which comes to, to policing, not just in terms of, of enforcement that, um, you know, of, of regulations, but also on the, the drug-impaired driving issue, uh, where there's going to be, I think, considerable costs uh, in that area. Yeah. Along with that will be enforcement um, in terms of bylaws and then provincial enforcement, because I think whatever kind of retail model you're going to have, I think you're going to need to look at, at uh, province-wide enforcement that rules are, are in fact, being followed. Uh, and, on, you know, and then you're going to have local communities with, with bylaws. So all of those things are going to acquire um, revenue, and our position is, is look, uh, that needs to come. Ottawa needs to give us the lion's share uh, of the revenue, and I fully expect that there will be revenue sharing with local government as well. How will that work, Mike? I mean, uh, we've we heard from the uh, federal finance minister yesterday that uh, that's not essentially Ottawa's job in response to the Federation of Canadian Municipalities' request for a third, third, and third split. Uh, so, will there be formal negotiations between the province and the municipalities? And- we we have been working right now with local government. Uh, we put together a working group that was announced at UBCM to look at issues around uh, uh, around the legalization of cannabis and how it impacts on local government. They've submitted a report to us. Um, a lot of it will depend, too, on the kind of responsibilities that end up being, you know, that local government is looking after or that the province is looking after. Um, you know, some communities have said to us um, that they don't want any retail uh, whatsoever uh, in their community. And if that's the case, then obviously, you know, similar to, to lotteries, in, do you then not get revenue? Whereas others have said, um, look, if the province is going to do the bulk of the enforcement, then um, we're not as hung up on revenue as if we're doing the bulk of the uh, the enforcement. But right now, the key is is that the province and the federal government or the federal government need to come to an agreement around how the revenue sharing is going to take place and what the final taxation is going to look like. I've argued that there needs to be, um, you know, a uniform tax rate right across the country. And if it's 80-20, uh, if that's where it end up, then of course we would be working with local government in terms of okay. We now know, the province now knows what the, the, the revenue split is going to be, and then we're able to, to work with local government. All right. Among those costs, as you mentioned just a minute ago, is clearly enforcement. If other jurisdictions are any example, uh, that is a big kind of off-the-cuff uh, issue when marijuana is legalized. Uh, I know the Premier recently said he expects drug-impaired enforcement to be tested in the courts. Uh, number one, do you agree with that? And number two, where are we as far as having a device or a system to accurately test for marijuana impairment? On the first question, absolutely, I fully expect um, that uh, whatever rules and regulations are, are, are put in place around drug-impaired driving, they will be tested in the courts. I mean, you can 
bet your bottom dollar that that's going to happen. Uh, in terms of the, uh, the, the kind of equipment that will be in place, that is something that Ottawa has been working on. They've got Bill C-46, which is dealing with that. Um, they're looking at the different kinds of technology. My understanding is the latest it's going to be a saliva-based technology. But the issue is, is that no matter what technology they choose, one, um, and, and how, what technology is required, um, one, it's got, there's going to be a cost to it, uh, which is something we're going to have to deal with. The other, of course, is training. And that means to ensure that police officers are trained, whether they're RCMP or whether they're municipal police officers. Again, the sooner we know what it is, the sooner we can get on with doing that um, and uh, have a better understanding of, of what the costs are going to be. Um, and I expect they're going to be significant. Well, that kind of brings us full circle. We already know that there are scarce resources in, in communities like mine, and I assume others as well. Uh, and then we're going to have this added burden as of July 1, which is racing towards us. So what can be done there to kind of beef up the ability? Well, to- that, that's why what we have said and the finance minister has said and I have said is, is that we're not looking at uh, cannabis legalization in the short term as a big revenue generator for the province. Uh, you know, you get many people going, oh, they're going to get a windfall of, of money and they're going to have all kinds of things that they're going to be able to do. And it's like, well, actually, no. They're, we're going to, I think initially the revenues that are coming in are going to have to be, will be uh, covering the infrastructure costs, the setting up costs, the training costs, the enforcement costs, all of those associated costs that, are going to, that, that we're going to have to have um, as legalization comes to fruition. So in the short term, um, you know, cannabis revenue will be, uh, that's, that's where it'll be going. So uh, um, in the medium term and long term, I'm sure there will be revenue, but not at the beginning. And that's why we've said this is about legalization, not about revenue generation, certainly not at the beginning. All right. Uh, the other big issue uh, to deal with legal marijuana will be the spring session. You've already said that there's going to be a lot, of, a lot of work that's going to dominate that session. Can you get it done or are there challenges there? Um, it is a very tight, tight line. Uh, there are a lot of challenges. Um, BC's not alone in that regard. All the provinces have told Ottawa that they would like to have more time. But the reality is, as Ottawa has said, it will be July next year. It's not going to be July 1st. Um, but uh, we're working as hard as we can uh, to meet a July deadline. Uh, there's about at least 18 pieces of legislation that will either have to be amended uh, or introduced uh, to deal uh, with legalization. Um, it's very complex. Uh, it's going to take up a lot of drafting time. It's going to take up a lot of time in terms of, of debate and scrutiny uh, in the legislature. This is a significant public policy change, probably the biggest public policy change that we've seen in this country in decades. And so it will, it will dominate uh, a lot of the, uh, the legislative agenda uh, in the spring session. Uh, as far as the wholesale distribution to the liquor distribution branch, Mike, you reference that these two products can't coexist together, meaning liquor and, and pot. Uh, that insinuates we're going to have to have a whole new warehousing, if not a whole new distribution system that's going to run concurrently to the one the LDB already has. I assume that if that's true, then that's going to cost a lot of, a lot of uh, there's um, going to be a lot of cost there. Th- what, what I've said is I expect that they will be that they will be separate in terms of the distribution. Uh, the co-location on the retail, ish, on the retail side has not yet been decided. Um, but the model that we're looking at is basically the similar to what every other uh, jurisdiction uh, in the country 
is going with, which is a public wholesale distribution model. Um, we've got the expertise uh, in terms of the LDB and in terms of handling a regulated product, acting as a wholesale uh, distributor, and uh, I'm confident that they will be able to uh, to get the job done and in place uh, by by July. So um, I actually feel very confident on that side of things. Yeah, it's still going to be an added cost, though, Mike. I assume oh, we're going to see some. This whole some... thing there will be there will be costs. Um, you know that uh, we are going to have to that we're going to have to deal with, and it comes back to the point I made a, a few moments ago, which is. Don't be counting on this as a revenue source um, in the short term. Uh, Mike, uh, just one last question before we let you go. I want to go back to the guns issue. Yeah. Uh, you recently threatened to try and take away the ability to drive from gangsters. Um, I'm just curious, where we, where are we in that discussion, and do you really think that's legally feasible? I talked to one lawyer who basically said, good luck with that. Um, that's why we're doing the, uh, the public policy work on it. We're looking at it both in terms of the Attorney General's ministry and uh, uh, within, within our ministry. Uh, the, the authors of the report absolutely believe that it is feasible, as does the superintendent of motor vehicles. That's why we want to make sure that it's done right. It's not something that you can apply in every case, but if someone is using an illegal vehicle or is, using, is carrying illegal weapons, uh, and there's an opportunity um, under existing laws or, or, or regulations to, to, uh, to get them off the, the road by, uh, by confiscating their vehicle or impounding their vehicle, I absolutely think we should try and do that. All right, Mike. Always a pleasure, sir. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for your lot. Okay, that's Public Safety uh, Minister and Solicitor General Mike Farnworth. We'll take a quick break and reconnect with Vaughn Palmer and Keith Baldry on the other side. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. Keeping you informed from both sides. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Radio NL's Inside Politics with Shane Woodford. Welcome back. Thank you for tuning in. Pleasure to be joined on the phone now uh, with Global BC's Keith Baldry and the Vancouver Suns' Vaughn Palmer. Gentlemen. Hey Shane. Good morning. Ah, you're both there. Good Lord. Now my blood pressure can go down. <laughs> We're having all sorts of phone issues on our side, so apologies to you both. Uh, guys, well, I was going to do Site C, but I want some room to breathe with that, so why don't we do it after the bottom of the hour break and just kind of carry on the baton here uh, on legal marijuana, as you heard Mike Farnworth talking about that. Uh, Keith, a lot of legislative work to be done here, and Mike seemed to sort of hedge his bets about whether they can or can't get it done. Well, he told me uh, a couple weeks ago that he's figured at least 18 different uh pieces of legislation are required in terms of amending all sorts of bills, everything from uh, the Motor Vehicle Act, so uh, the legalization of cannabis affects driving laws, it affects tenancy laws, landlords' rights, uh, strata councils, condos, uh, just you name it. It just uh, permeates all through society and all aspects of life. And so, uh, yeah, he's, uh, he's a little concerned that it's when you say you've got to have 18 bills, well, you need legislature drafters uh, to be at work on these things. And not everybody can draft legislation. These are legal experts within the BC government whose job it is is to uh, come up with laws that stand uh, stand up in court and don't inadvertently lead to some unintended consequences. And uh, and there's only so many people who can do that. So they're already behind the schedule because the stuff that normally has to be done, just the housekeeping stuff. Uh, that just needs to be updated. Uh, it's no, not particularly controversial. That's what's usually being drafted right now. And that has blocked their attempts to sort of start drafting the marijuana legislation. So that's not even really begun yet in mm. the new year. And that's why I think he's concerned he can get it all done. And then on top of that, he's told his caucus colleagues, you, you know, you got your, your, your 
pet bill, forget it. It's not coming in. We've got to deal with the budget legislation from Carol James and his marijuana legislation, and that is it, basically, for the spring session. Wow. Vaughn? Yeah, the the legislation other than this will be put over to a fall session uh, in 2018, so people that are waiting for government action on a bunch of things are going to have to wait a while. And, you know, you got into some of this with your interview with Farnworth this morning. Some of this stuff is going to be very, very difficult to sort out. I would use as one example the landlord and tenant issue and the strata title issue. Are, are strata buildings going to be able to ban uh, marijuana within the building? Uh, what if it's medical marijuana? Uh, what if your neighbor is out on his or her deck? smoking marijuana and you find the smell revolting. Mm. There's a whole bunch of issues around that. I was struck, too, by your chat with him about the saliva test for impairment. Uh, how reliable is that? Yeah. I mean, think back a generation to the lengthy, lengthy legal battles around testing for impaired driving, how long it took for the police to get that right, how many cases and convictions were thrown out. So I think there's huge adjustment issues it's interesting, again, to hear farmers say, don't go looking for a revenue windfall on this one. Ottawa is going to try to hold back a lot of its share of the revenue, but the provinces and local government are going to need that money to adjust to the brave new world of cannabis legalization. Yeah, you don't even have to go back a generation. The DUI laws are being challenged in court as we speak. Yes. Uh, cost, uh, another big one, Keith. Uh, it just seems like this thing is going to be a big bill before we see any revenue back on it. Oh yeah, no. The uh, the cost for uh, on any number of levels uh, is going to be significant, and it's uh, and Farnworth and and Carol James from day one. Remember, they did their fact finding tour down in Washington State. Yeah, they've been saying all along, don't expect this to be a money grab. Uh, it is not a big big windfall for the provinces. There are expenses associated with the legal, legalization of marijuana on the law enforcement side, on. Um, on the the drugs and addiction side, it's uh, it's it's a cost onerous for for British government. That's why you you got Carol James in Ottawa this week with other finance ministers. One of the big topics of discussion is sort of pressing Ottawa to back away from the fifty fifty formula in terms of revenues. Already there are reports that Ottawa is willing to go to an eighty twenty split of revenues because the provinces bear most of the costs in this this program. The the, the Ottawa is basically responsible for overseeing the production, handing out licenses to provinces to, to, to grow marijuana. But the province is the one who has to distribute it, retail it, and enforce the rules. And there are costs associated with that. That's why they're saying a 50-50 split is simply not on the table. Yeah, and when it comes down to that tax revenue, Vaughn, as you heard when I talked to Mike, uh, the the municipalities are already lining up to the Federation of Canadian Municipalities, the Union of BC Municipalities, individual mayors. They want a chunk of this pie, and that's going to be a whole separate battle once Ottawa and the province and te- provinces and territories hash this out. I agree, and here's another issue that I think really matters to British Columbians and should matter, which is, will Ontario and Quebec use their usual political power to try to control production and licensing? Ottawa dispenses the licenses for producing this stuff. But as as Farnworth has pointed out, and John Horgan has as well, British Columbia's regional producers of marijuana, it's not just that they're famous for B.C. Bud and and well-known for producing it as an illicit drug. Uh, It's a big part of the regional economy in British Columbia. And do those producers, are they not entitled to essentially become legit, like our craft breweries, uh, like our boutique wineries, 
But in this case, it's not just a matter of saying, well, they'll have access to the provincial distribution network. They've got to get a fair share of the licenses. And it's not clear to me. Think of what happened with milk quotas a generation ago, right? It's not clear to me that Ottawa is going to get the message that there should be a fair distribution of licenses out here so that the B.C. producers that aren't controlled by organized crime, that are just legit regional producers, get a piece of the action. I asked Hornworth about that last week, Shane, and uh, he said he's expressing some early optimism in his talks with Ottawa that B.C. will get a a higher share of the quota of licenses, but he's not convinced yet that we're anywhere near what we're really entitled to. I think right now there's 16 licenses uh, doled out to B.C. for medical marijuana production. Um, I'm not sure he's looking to double that, but I think he's looking to significantly increase that, because as Juan says, these, some of these operations are big parts of the local economy. It may be underground yeah. economy, but it's the economy. And whether it's the Kootenays or the Gulf Islands, uh, this is very important to uh, local economic uh, health. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, uh, let's take a quick break to the bottom of the hour, get caught up in the news, and we may be just a few days away from a Site C decision. All sorts of interesting things in that front. We'll dive into it next. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. Accountable to you. This is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Center on Radio NL. Good morning and welcome back. We're talking to Vaughn Palmer and Keith Baldry. Uh, guys, the year is going to end in a bang likely early next week when the province announces its Site C decision. I know that the legislature was buzzing on uh, Thursday, Friday as the cabinet met, uh, etc. You guys are busy trying to get whatever intel you could pry out of various ministers and MLAs. Uh, Keith, why don't we start with you? Where are we at in this process and, and what are the tea leaves looking like now? I think it's a go, um, based on, you know, (laughs) Wednesday afternoon, I'll tell you. I camped outside the cabinet chambers uh, and stayed there until, well, 8 o'clock at night when the place is deserted. But knowing that ministers and staff are going home late, buttonholing them and trying to get at least some indication of which way they're headed, and certainly I've received no information or clues that suggest the Site C will be cancelled. On the contrary, the stuff I'm picking up is it is going to go ahead. It seems to be. I mean, I haven't got it totally confirmed yet, but uh, and I think it's probably Monday that we're we're likely to see. So I'm betting again, no leaks yet, no absolute confirmation. But reading the proverbial tea leaves, it seems to be a yes to site C and uh, as early as Monday. All right, Vaughn, what are you hearing right now? Yeah, the same. I think I think we're headed for a continue the project, but I also think we're going to get. Maybe not a complete relaunch, but certainly a reframing in language that New Democrats are going to be a lot more comfortable with, yeah. the people in the cabinet and the caucus. And I think that reframing will be around that this project is going ahead because this government is determined uh, to move British Columbia to a greater degree of electrification in the provincial economy, uh, oil and gas production, electrical vehicles, electric vehicles, uh, electrification of the whole province. And I think they will, in that context, say, look, we need Site C for that because it's going to replace fossil fuel generation and provide us with our future growth. And the other thing I think they will say is that it does not mean that we won't be doing wind power and geothermal as well. There's a very interesting speech given by the Deputy Minister of Energy recently in Mm -hmm. B.C. He said the long-term prospects for a fully clean, electrified B.C. economy is that by the middle of this century, 
only a little over 30 years away. By the middle of this century, we would need nine more Site Cs. Well, they're only going to build one more Site C. So Site C fits into a long-term plan for a, a for greener elect, uh, electrical energy generation in BC. And I think you're going to hear from the NDP, we're not ruling out wind farms and all that other stuff. We're going to do that as well. Yeah, I think Vaughn raises an interesting point here, Keith. They may approve Site C or may not. I guess we'll find out next week. But if they do, I, I wonder if it's going to be the exact same carbon copy project that, that we saw before, whether there are going to be alterations or tweaks or, or et cetera. I think you're going to probably see a shift to a different labor uh, agreement structure uh, with more favoring uh, the building trades unions mm-hmm. and probably some requirements for apprentice, apprenticeships on uh, on site. So I think that's going to be part of the change as well uh, to placate the building trades. We really haven't had a big part of the action yet on site C, but going forward, I think they will. And you know, back to Vaughn's comments about the deputy minister speech. Uh, that deputy uh, deputy minister of energy, Dave Nicolition. His speech in the last 48 hours has made the rounds. Everybody's getting copies of this thing. And he outlined at a clean energy conference last week, mentioning his minister's mandate to have a sort of an energy roadmap in B.C. and the need to be able to electrify up to 300,000 vehicles by 2030 uh, and electrify heavy industry and other things. And you can only do that with... um, Site C and other uh, energy uh, providers. So uh, that's another clue. Again, we were, we're compiling all these clues of where mm-hmm. the government's headed, but that's a big clue that suggests that Site C is a go. Now, here's an interesting wrinkle in in that speech and in some of the subsequent coverage. Uh, assuming at this point that they go ahead with Site C, assuming um, that one of the big ways that we can electrify or, or take advantage of that produced electricity is to ship it to places like United States, obviously, but also to Alberta. And I know Premier Rachel. Notley has now said, well, you know, that's not a one-off. We are going to link that with the Trans Mountain Pipeline. We can't have one without the other, which provides an interesting twist on this one. Yes. Alberta may be a hard sell on that idea. On paper, it looks like a great idea. You build, the federal government said they would contribute to it. You build a new transmission line between the northeast of B.C. and Alberta. You you provide that electricity to Alberta to wean them off coal-fired generation and to electrify uh, production in the oil sands. So they wouldn't be burning natural gas to do that anymore. They'd be using hydroelectricity from B.C. Looks great on paper, but you've identified the big obstacle to this when the Christie Clark government suggested it, which is essentially the NDP government of Alberta saying, look, you're not going to take our oil. Why the hell should we take your electricity? I don't know how they clear that hurdle. I think there is an opening there. I think there might be a way to do it. But Alberta is heading into a very political time, too. Their election is now spring of 2019. I don't know what they can work out on that one. It would take a while to build that transmission line anyway. And look, Site C isn't going to be up and running until 2025. Yeah, absolutely. Won't be premier when Site C is up and running, and John Horgan likely won't be premier here. So uh, the landscape's going to uh, have several alterations before we get to uh, to Site C coming online, and, and the conversation could be very different. Nicolition in that speech also pointed out that PowerX, which is the subsidiary of BC Hydro, the export arm, uh, signing a new deal to allow it even more access to uh, to industries in the Western United States. So. Hydro's opening up more avenues of, of to sell power, so it needs more power. It's another argument I think the government will use the white site is going to go. 
All right, uh, two quick uh, key questions on site, see, before we uh, take a break and move on to another topic. Uh, number one, uh, do the Boons and the other affected family end up staying put at the end of this? And number two, uh, with John Horgan and, and his government running on affordability, if they do charge ahead with site, see, can they do anything to control costs and, and kind of more fall on that messaging? Uh, well, they were on the verge. Uh, the, the reason the Boons are vacating is because of the relocation of the highway around the reservoir. Government was on the verge, Hydro was on the verge of awarding the first of those contracts when that was suspended pending the BCUC review. I gather there are still six contracts there to be awarded, three road building contracts, three bridges. Uh, they may be able to work around the, Bo- the Boons property. They may not have to get out, but... Uh, I don't think they're going to hold it up for that anymore. If they're going ahead, Hydro is on the verge of awarding the highway contract. They've got a big contract for generating stations and spillways, and they called tenders a little while ago, and those closed on November the 30th for two new transmission lines linking Site C to the Peace Canyon uh power station. So essentially, we're on the verge of going ahead with an awful lot of work up there. If the government says, fine, you proceed beyond December the 31st, there's, I think you could see stuff moving fairly quickly up there on some pretty big deals. And and when it comes to rates, it's folly for anyone to think that somehow hydro rates aren't going to go up, uh, whether Site C is built or not. I mean, hydro rates are going to go up over the next 10 years, just like your ICBC rates are going to go up. Mm. Your, your property taxes are going to go up. I mean, that's, that's life. It, everything is increasing. And the, the trick is whether your wages are going to keep pace with these inevitable increases we're going to see on all sorts of things we get from government. Uh, so hydro rates are, are, are going up. Uh, the NAP is trying to have a freeze for one year. Uh, still in doubt whether they can even get that enacted from the BC Utilities Commission. There is an analysis that suggests the site sees killed. Uh, our hydro rates immediately get hit with a 10% rate increase almost immediately. So uh, even when site C, if site C is built, it will still put pressure on hydro's debt levels and rate payers, and hydro rates will inevitably go up over time. Okay. Uh, we're going to have a pretty interesting uh, discussion next week, I'm sure, about Site C, if all the dominoes fall into places we think they will. Uh, we'll take a quick break here in Inside Politics and pick up our conversation with Keith Baldry and Vaughn Palmer on the other side. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. For Kamloops Computer Center. This is Radio NL's Inside Politics. Here's NL News Director, Shane Woodford. Good morning. Thank you for listening and welcome back. We're talking to Vaughn Palmer and Keith Baldry. Uh, guys, uh, former RCMP Deputy Commissioner Peter German, uh, also a lawyer, uh, is doing probably what I think might be one of the most interesting reports when we see it early next year uh, that we've seen in this province in a long time around this money laundering in casinos. He tabled two early recommendations uh, this week and seemed to confirm that uh, indeed there is some money laundering going on. Uh, what was your read on what uh, what uh, was rolled out in David Eby's press conference? I believe it was on Wednesday. Uh, Shane, I think it, well, first of all, vindication for some terrific reporting by Sam Cooper. Absolutely. media yeah. has been reporting on this for the last few months and indicated the dimensions of the problem of money laundering in B.C. casinos. And look, until we get a really good explanation from the B.C. liberals, and I don't think we've had one, there's a lot of evidence that they just let this problem slide. They didn't take a lot of action against it, maybe because they didn't believe there was as much of a problem as there was, maybe because they like the revenue 
revenue that was pouring in. But I think you've seen EB take a couple of very important actions right away. I think more will come from Peter German. He's an internationally recognized expert on money laundering. And look, it's pretty shocking what's been going on in B.C. casinos. Uh, We like to think we have a world-class reputation, Shane, on this one. The practice of money laundering through B.C. casinos is so widespread Mm. and so easy to do it's known as the Vancouver model uh, for corruption. Uh, that's not a proud achievement by British Columbia. Yeah, Evie's point that you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out someone bringing in a hockey duffel bag full of $20 bills uh, is, is, is weird. And it's got a question uh, why that would be allowed to happen, not just once, but on a regular basis in some of these casinos. I think the casinos will only turn a blind eye uh, or or worse, and we'll find out from Peter German's investigation just how, how uh, intrusive this practice was. But uh, it's been the wild west. We talk about the wild west of political fundraising in the past. It's really the wild yeah. west of, of money laundering in, in B.C.'s casinos. So they're going to clean it up. It's going to be interesting, though, what the hit will be on revenues to the government. The government, I'll tell you, is increasingly, it's not just because it's the NDP, it's whatever government it is, is increasingly in dire need of revenue. Yes. And, uh, and they're loath to raise taxes. So any hit on B.C. lottery revenues to government is going to be problematic for Finance Minister Carol James, but there likely will be some kind of hit. Yeah, absolutely. And David Eby uh, did say in that press conference that uh, he's been assured by the Premier that they're going to take whatever action is needed and then added no matter the hit to gaming revenue. Uh, now, obviously, a crime's a crime here, Vaughn, but uh, there there looks like there might be some impact. Oh, yes. And the other thing that EB said is they're working on legislation to protect whistleblowers because some of the information we have here coming from casino employees who were appalled at what was going on. You know, we've had whistleblowers say that they were told, no, 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 don't make a fuss. These people are VIPs, right? Leave them alone. You know, let them bring money in whatever way they want. And if you think about it, it's not just that a casino employee could lose their job. Given the amount of money that's coming in illicitly, $13.5 million worth of $20 bills in a one-month space, right? That's, that's, the, that's in one of the reports. When you think about that, those people are, are not just risking their jobs. They may be risking life and limb mm. by blowing the whistle on this. So it's really important that the other thing that gets put in place here is some protection for casino employees who, who are going to have to for, enforce the law on this kind of stuff. All right. Uh, we only got a few minutes left. I want to jam in a couple other topics here. Uh, I thought it was really interesting this week to see uh, former MLA uh, George Abbott, former cabinet minister George Abbott, uh, resurface as the premier taps him on the shoulder to co-chair this fire and flood review. Uh, Keith, what was your read on that? Oh, I think uh, I was impressed by that appointment. George Abbott's very highly respected, well-liked as well. Uh, and it goes back to, I always tell MLAs, you know, be nice to each other because it can pay off for you down the line. Well, Abbott always, was always very decent with the NDP in opposition. And I think there's always a genuine mutual respect between him and John Horgan. So not surprised he's been put on this wildfire review. Uh, the other thing, again, it's another example under John Horgan. He's, he's willing to reach out on the usual suspects and put them in jobs. And that's why you didn't see this, this wholesale uh, ousting of the civil, senior civil service when he took power. He kept a lot of deputies in place who'd been associated with the B.C. Liberals for a number of years because he respected their professionalism, didn't consider them to be overly partisan. And I think he put the, uh, viewed George Abbott through the same lens. So I think it's a, 
it's a good appointment, and it's a, a refreshing reminder that, um, unlike we've seen in previous turnovers of government, there's no real sort of uh, bloodbath when it comes to getting rid of uh, uh, rid of people that don't necessarily share your party card. There's a willingness to embrace other views. Yeah, an interesting dynamic too, Vaughn, with George uh, seeing him brought back by by John Horgan, and the fact that uh, George was essentially given the boot by his his own previous party or now government in the former Premier Christy Clark. Yeah, George, who finished third in the leadership race against Christy Clark, was on the verge, was just days away from becoming the chief treaty commissioner in British Columbia on treaty talks. He was backed by uh, the federal government. He was backed by First Nations. The provincial government recruited him for the job. And he, George was in the middle of briefings on taking over the job, and the liberals withdrew their support, basically dumped him, humiliated him. It was a shocking decision, and even though they apologized later, they only apologized for a communication screw-up. They didn't say that it was fundamentally wrong to recruit an experienced guy like that for a key job, get Ottawa and the First Nations, and in fact the NDP on side, because John Horgan was approached and said quietly he agreed with it, and then to pull a rug out from under him at the last minute. It was a really bad treatment of a decent guy, and I think part of what Horgan did this week is signal that he recognized that. I mean, I think he picked Abbott for other reasons, but it was a welcome vindication for the guy as well. All right. Uh, we only got a couple minutes left. Uh, last topic, and that's the uh, uh, National Energy Board ruling this week that essentially Trans Mountain, Kinder Morgan can ignore the city of Burnaby bylaws, a couple of ones they were using to kind of stall work near the Westridge Marine Terminal. I know that yesterday, Environment Minister George Heyman kind of reacting. He was shocked and angry by the NEB Trans Mountain decision. Uh, Keith, to you, uh, what's going on here? Well, I'm not. I'm not uh, shocked at all. I mean, I don't. I could not see a national regula- regulatory agency uh, siding with the municipality uh, to block uh, an energy, a piece of energy infrastructure. I mean, I just didn't think that was ever in the cards. But this does not mean we're not having a looming showdown over some fundamental questions. At the end of the day, who has the right to block a pipeline? Is it the municipality or the province? Uh, or is it uh, ultimately the federal government's responsibility to ensure that pipeline goes through? So this is uh, maybe early days in what could be a constitutional uh, question, whether does Alberta have a constitutional right to ensure that its natural resources get to tidewater, and that's through a pipeline. Uh, or does B.C. have the right, or does Burnaby have the right to block that because it goes through their their particular territory? Uh, it's an interesting argument. I'm not surprised the NDB ruled this way, but uh, this fight is not over by any means. But Heyman's reaction is telling. He won't talk about Site C <laughs> when we've <laughs> asked him outside the cabinet room. He, basically, ministers are running away from on-the-record talking about Site C, but more than willing to throw, uh, to be very critical of the NEB, and George Heyman was quite critical and vocal yesterday about one energy project, but won't talk about the other one. All right, Vaughn, is this uh, is this in any way sort of foreshadowing for how the NDP opposition to Trans Mountain will play out? Look, uh, the oil is a big issue in Metro Vancouver, and the NDP did well and became government because they picked up 10 seats in Metro Vancouver. So I think they're wise to be fighting politically on that issue and doing everything they can. They may not win the battle at the end, but it makes sense politically. Think about Site C compared to that. It's in a remote part of the province where the NDP's never won seats. I think the NDP is serious in its concerns about Site C, but it's not fundamental to their political base in and around Metro Vancouver, where they won the seats that gave them government. 
All right, gentlemen, always a pleasure. Von Palmer, Keith Baldry, thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, we'll talk to you guys next week. And we're not done on Inside Politics, a podcast exclusive next. On the other side of this quick break, BC Liberal leadership contender in Vancouver, Colchena MLA, Andrew Wilkinson joins us on Inside Politics. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. Keeping you informed from both sides. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Radio NL's Inside Politics with Shane Woodford. Welcome back to Inside Politics. Pleasure to welcome Andrew Wilkinson, BC Liberal Leadership Contender to the program. Andrew, how are you? Great. Good to have you. Thank you for coming on. Uh, I guess first and foremost, uh, it's always a challenge when you're out on the campaign trail uh, away from house and home every day. How are things going uh, both uh, on the campaign trail and dealing with it on the home front? Well, it's a busy life, and uh, you know, I'm fortunate that my kids are all grown up and out of the house, and so that makes it... Uh, somewhat more straightforward, but uh, it is a very quick trip around the province of British Columbia when you're on a leadership campaign, and sometimes you got to just pause and catch up. How much has that leadership campaign changed for, for yourself and, and the people you're competing against now that the fall sitting the ledge uh, is in the books, and, and time-wise, you have more time to commit to this thing? Well, there are five of us in the caucus, uh, members of the legislature, who are vying for leadership, plus one, uh, Diane Watts, who's not in the legislature. So all of us who are in the legislature were very conscious of uh, her being out and about in communities of British Columbia and us wanting to get out and catch up. So now we've got the chance to be out on a regular basis, and uh, all of us, I think, have been all over B.C., which is a very healthy thing as we build up the interest in the leadership campaign. And, of course, the goal is to uh, continue the growth of the B.C. Liberal Party. It seems like yourself and uh, Todd Stone and, and uh, Mike DeYoung, to some degree, are, are busy having uh, Diane in your sights, especially during the debates. What's your assessment of uh, Miss Watts? Well, at the outset of any of these kinds of campaigns, the first impressions are a name recognition, and her name was more recognizable than the rest of us. And so I think uh, the rest of us uh, assumed that we had to uh, sort out the position of Diane Watts in the, the hierarchy as we move forward. And I think uh, it's been very effectively shown the debates that there are a few real contenders in this uh, race, and I hope that people think I'm one of them. All right. This is an interesting campaign, Andrew, at a number of levels. It's not like an election campaign where uh, the local electorate is into it, and that makes it difficult both for the candidates like yourself and for people in the media like myself to kind of get a pulse on what's going on when it's confined within the B.C. Liberal Party. What is your sense about engagement and how the race is going within the party, the people who are going to decide this thing? The fascinating thing, you know, is there have been four public debates so far. They've gone very well inside the room and very high levels of interest at the local level in Prince George and Imo, uh, Surrey, and then, of course, in Kelowna. And so those who are keeners in the party are very fully engaged. And like I said, um, a few of us are doing well and rising up the ranks, including me, and it's going very well from my perspective. And, of course, the other question is how many people watch it later, whether through Facebook or YouTube, and that you can do from the counts. But it is remarkable when you talk to people who haven't seen the debates and they have a sense of what's going on, because clearly people talk about it amongst their friends and colleagues, and there are lots of people in this party as members who are uh, fully interested but may not find the full time to watch a two-hour debate. But even so, they've got a handle on what's going on. They know that uh, my star is rising in this campaign, and that's great to hear. 
One of the other interesting things about the campaign is it's uh, full of deadlines and it's sort of multifaceted. It's not just you going out and doing the debates and getting the FaceTime and shaking the hands. It's also about signing up members and a key deadline is looming December 29th when the, the signing of members uh, comes to a stop. How are you doing on that front and, and how do you think the other campaigns are, are doing as well? It's going well and I think it's been a realization for all the campaigns that they're is not the level of sign-up there was in 2011 because that was a race to select a premier. Nonetheless, we have lots of interest in it, and you know the uh, usual uh, politically engaged folks are heavily involved, and people are signing up all over the place. So we're seeing good numbers. We'd obviously like to see more in all the camps, but mine's going well, and uh, we'll see how it pans out. Because you're quite right, this is a not only a battle of ideas, uh, competition for. Uh, new ways to do things in the province of British Columbia. It's also a matter of organizing at the political level, which means getting out and selling memberships by December 29th. Uh, you tabled your platform uh, last Friday. Uh, it's got a lot of interesting things in it. One of the things that kind of rose to the top and became fodder uh, for a lot of public chatter was this promise to cut overdose deaths by 50% in the first two years. Uh, I assume the two years of you being premier. Uh, how do you tackle that? Because I think this is an issue where people have been trying to do that, if not more, for a long time, and we have not made any headway in this particular crisis. So is that a bold claim to make, and how are you going to accomplish it? Well, it is a bold claim to make, but when you think about it, it's got to be one of the most important things we do in this province. We cannot have over a 1,000 people dying of uh, usually fentanyl overdoses every year and just say it's business as usual. Now, when we were in government uh, last April, April 2016, we declared a a public health state of emergency to try and uh, expedite a whole bunch of things. We lead the continent, really, not just the country, in terms of the harm reduction approach. But I'm saying we need to do a whole bunch more in terms of prevention and treatment and uh, the enforcement against trafficking in these products to make sure that people uh, have a a sense that there's a different way to live and a different opportunity and they don't need to be dependent on taking potentially lethal drugs either to top up their prescriptions or to uh, get high for recreational reasons or because they're hardcore addicts. Yeah, I absolutely agree. But I still don't understand sort of where you get uh, a rock hard promise to cut deaths by 50%. It's, it's a pretty interesting number. I, I'm all for it. Let's do it. Uh, but I'm interested in how you plan on getting that done. Well, you got to remember, I trained as a physician, worked as a doctor, and I've actually talked to addiction, addiction specialists about this, and that's the number that they suggested was entirely doable. But it's going to take a big concerted program on all four fronts, not just harm reduction, but treatment, prevention, and enforcement to get this plague under control. You know, it's a particularly difficult problem because it's all over our society. The the largest group of people dying of fentanyl overdoses are males from 20 to 50 who have jobs who die alone in their home from oral medication. And that's not going to be solved by handing out naloxone kits. That's going to have to be solved by a whole different approach, working with the medical profession and making sure that we're getting the kind of Uh, pain treatment services and pain management services in the place that lead people down this path and also making sure that we're addressing those kind of societal and social concerns that lead people down this path in the first place. I've had people tell me that, I mean, we're all aware what the four pillars approach is and harm reduction gets a lot of the spotlight, but perhaps the other three don't. Is that more or less how you're coming at this? Exactly, because harm reduction is very visual, so it makes good television, and it tends to talk an awful lot about the downtown east side of Vancouver. And as I've said earlier, the number one concern are the 20- to 50-year-old males who have jobs and die uh, alone at home because they're taking these uh, 
poisoned and uh, contaminated products, uh, either to top up their prescriptions for narcotics or to get some kind of high out of it. And that's where we're going to have to put an awful lot of effort to make sure that we back down those numbers. That is kind of the definition of harm reduction to me, is a drop in the number of people dying of this dreadful affliction. Yeah, it's uh, in every way just an absolute awful tragedy. I want to move on and talk about some other parts of your platform. One of the things that caught my eye that I thought was interesting was this pledge to sort of repatriate British Columbian entrepreneurs working abroad. I think uh, most of us, if you talk to me about nurses or doctors or something like that, I would say, okay, I get that idea, but are we really losing entrepreneurs and setting up shop elsewhere to numbers that we need to lure them back? And, and what's going on there? Well, there's always a concern when you talk to talented people and they say, oh, yes, you know, so-and-so is here and they've moved to Silicon Valley or they've actually moved to the U.S. There are, British Columbia has traditionally been a place where we get high-quality skills development and training and we lose a good number of people to the bright lights down south. And that's a chronic problem of people with a lot of talent moving to places like Seattle and San Francisco because they see their opportunities there. And this is an entrepreneurial class I'm talking about. These are the people in the tech sector for the most part. And we can do a much better job of engaging with them and suggesting what their opportunities are here. There are a lot of British Columbians living elsewhere in the world who would love to move back here, but they have trouble uh, defining the opportunity that will be as good as what they've got where they are. Let's talk about some big issues in the province. Uh, one of the ones that I think, uh, there's two that I think are sort of dominating the scene right now. One is marijuana, the other is housing. We'll talk about housing first. The housing affordability crisis used to be uh, a, a unique Metro Vancouver phenomenon. Uh, but over the last few years, I, I really believe that that crisis has overflowed and, and now is affecting literally every single community in this province. My own here in Kamloops, we've seen a real estate market that has been red hot for two years running. Housing prices are on a steady uh, increasing upward trend and we're seeing more more people from Metro Vancouver flooding into the market, which is sort of causing the secondary real estate explosion. So, Andrew, it's, it's a tricky balance here, but how do you tackle um, making things more affordable in Metro Vancouver and sort of in some of these secondary real estate markets without, A, affecting equity uh, for people, and B, sort of uh, spiking the balloon in rural communities like this that are welcoming an influx of, of new citizens? I think you're exactly right, Shane. We've seen a real ripple effect uh, starting in Vancouver with the run-up in real estate prices, and that takes some people to say, well, they'll cash out and move to Victoria, and they've got a big chunk of cash in hand, so the prices drop in Victoria. Same thing's happening in Kelowna and Kamloops, much less so in places like Prince George, which are still pretty affordable. But nonetheless, you're right. The issue is there's a lot of capital coming to the market and bid up the prices, and so the key thing is that we've got to make sure that there's enough supply of housing that people can find a place that's affordable. And that's going to end up being a combination of things. We've got to make sure that the 120,000 units sitting on uh, municipal planners' desks in Metro Vancouver actually get processed and built to increase the supply of housing in that affordable space, mostly townhouses, condominiums, apartments, but some houses as well. And secondly, we've got to make sure that we're addressing the rental market there was actually a very useful report that came out from the city of Vancouver about 10 days ago that dealt exactly with this and the need to uh, provide for mechanisms to build more rental housing starting in the city of Vancouver, but also it's going to have to spread out throughout the province. And that means we're going to have to start to ask questions about our approach to zoning because it's, uh, it's too easy to say, oh, we can't change anything, therefore we can't build anything. And as a society, we're going to have to get used to that. You know, when I moved to Kamloops as a kid, I arrived in Kamloops at the age of four. 
and lived there through my school years. And the population of BC then was 1.6 million. It's now 4.7 million. So it's tripled in my single lifetime. I don't know if it would triple again, but certainly there are going to be another million people here, at least another million, and we're going to have to plan for that and anticipate it. A lot of that's going to be in Metro Vancouver, but it's also going to be throughout the province. You know, Calumps is about 10,000 people when I got there. It's now, what, 100? Yeah, we're looking at about 100, 110. Yeah, exactly. So we've got to start to think about what's the, this place, whether it's Kamloops or Clearwater or Coquitlam, what's it going to look like in 50 years? And we've got to start to anticipate that and get ready for it. Did your did the previous government, your government, drop the ball in tackling this crisis head on, the housing crisis, and, and you know, in not kind of allowing it to get to the place it is today? Well, there's a whole bunch of factors that went into this, and partly it's that Vancouver is an attractive place to live for people who want to come from other parts of Canada or, for that matter, people who, like me, grew up in Kamloops that ended up living in Vancouver. So that's the internal migration, as it's called. There's also the kind of recreational market of people from other places in Canada or the USA or elsewhere who say, oh, I'd like to have a place to stay in Vancouver when I'm there, or my kids are at uh, the institution you know, getting education in BC, so why not buy a place for them? there's been uh, a great increase in demand without a corresponding increase in supply. And, you know, a good example of that is on the city block that I live on. When we moved in 18 years ago, there were about 20 people. It went up to 36 with a batch of kids coming through. It's now down to about 18. And that's a city block with 45 bedrooms on it. And so you think, well, gee, you know, our density keeps going down because people are living longer and longer and choosing to stay in their own homes, which is a really good, healthy thing for seniors. But at the same time, it reduces the amount of available housing stock for families and so forth. So what happens? The prices go up. We all know that there's been an influx of cash from uh, offshore, and that's been a factor as well. We put in the foreign buyer's tax um, in the summer of 2016. It slowed the market significantly for about four months, and then the market started to move up again in Metro Vancouver. So this story isn't over. And, uh, of course, we're not in government. Uh, We're in opposition. We're going to see what the NDP do with it. But you're also correct that we got to make sure that people don't uh, lose their shirts by some government intervention that wipes out value in the market. Yeah. Uh, let's end on marijuana, uh, which I think is going to be an issue that is going to be huge. It's huge now, but it's going to be huge uh, next year when we see this uh, legalization happen on July 1, both in the preparations leading up to it and how uh, this whole thing rolls out after July 1st. Uh, we saw some pieces of the puzzle fall into place this week with uh, a teasing of a retail public-private model, which will be announced in the new year. Uh, the BCLDB will play wholesale distributor, and the minimum age is 19. What's your assessment of, of this issue, and, and is there anything that you think that should be done uh, that isn't being currently done by either level of government. For sure. And the federal government's one that's decided that marijuana should be legalized. And so the province has to deal with it. And my view is if there's going to be medical marijuana, it should be at a medical pharmaceutical standard of purity and reliability. It should only be used on the doctor's prescription. And it should probably be sold out of places that operate at the standard of a pharmacy. That may be a pharmacy or something else, but it's a, if it's a medical product, you treat it like a medical product. The other side is the recreational market, and I've said we should go immediately to plain packaging because that's where we've gone with tobacco, and it needs to happen with marijuana early rather than trying to clean it up later. And secondly, that there should be very strict rules about sales to children. We all know that there's going to be a black market and some contraband marijuana around, but the stuff we're talking about is actually pretty potent, and there's very good evidence that it is bad for the brain of children. So rather than look back in 20 years and say how foolish we were by getting this out into the teenage market in an organized way. 
why don't we deal with it right up front and make it very, very difficult for anybody to sell to children. So does that mean, can I read between the lines there and, and say that, that you think perhaps the, the age of 19 should be increased then or, or no? I'm not sure what the correct age is right now. We should be talking to experts about that because if you take it up to 25, that's basically saying to adults they don't have the autonomy to make their own decisions. And if you take it down to 16, that's saying, well, we're just going to basically create a hazard for a bunch of teenagers and and the tips will fall where they may. You know, you've got to figure out the balance between uh, getting the consumption reduced amongst that group of people without encouraging a black market. And that takes a pretty informed approach. It's not something that should be politicized. All right. Well, you, you're gunning to hopefully be premier uh, one day. So uh, the other big issue here is cost. Uh, if you were premier of this province, how would you ensure that those costs are covered both on the provincial level, but also on local governments who are lining up and saying, hey, we're doing the heavy lifting. We need some of this money from taxation. Yeah. And Washington state's done a reasonably good job of uh, putting taxation on at the distribution level and at the retail level. And I think we've got a lot of learning to do from these jurisdictions like Colorado and California and uh, and Washington, which have moved down this path more quickly. And speaking of cost, I should mention that the platform that I put out on my website, andrewwilkinson.ca, is fully costed in the back page. I'm a balanced budget guy. I don't believe in taking taxpayers' money out of people's pockets and spending it on my favorite pet program. And i got to tell you that Kamloops' own Todd Stone has put out a program that uh, buys the costing done by a former Deputy Minister of Finance Paul Taylor comes out at a $13.7 billion deficit over three years. So I'm going to be asking Todd to explain when he changed from being a liberal to being a big spender. Oh, there's a direct attack on Mr. Stone. Do uh, you see him as your chief opponent here? Well, Todd and I are shaping up as uh, having a, a contest as we move forward, and my campaign's done exceptionally well, and I expect that he and I will be uh, crossing very polite swords because we are friends, we do get along, and we intend to be on the same team on February the 5th. So uh, we'll have a healthy debate, and that's what uh, I think the public are entitled to. All right. My last question here, Andrew, is, uh, and it's very kind of built on that Todd Stone versus you foundation. Uh, there is the interior northern part of the province, and there's Metro Vancouver, and there's often a perceived rural-urban divide between the two. Uh, you're very much a Metro Vancouver guy, although you'll say, hey, listen, I had roots in, in Kamloops and other uh, rural parts of the community. Everyone's pitching themselves as having a leg on both sides here, but uh, how do you kind of cross or build a bridge across that rural-urban divide, and how much will it affect the leadership race? Well, I'll start with uh, the background. I'm the only one of the candidates who's lived and worked all over BC. I've worked over a period of three years in Campbell River and Dees Lake, Lillooet, grew up in Kamloops, uh, did my training in trail. So there's a, a good understanding of in, the entirety of BC when it comes to my campaign. The second part is we've got to concentrate on what matters to people in their backyard. And I think that's what the NDP taught us in this last election, is that they appealed to people about issues that were very real to them. We did very well in the interior, and we did very badly in uh, in the Lower Mainland, and I'm a candidate who can uh, compete very effectively in both of those spaces. So the party, in your mind, needs a uh, leader that's from Metro Vancouver, then? Well, I wouldn't go so far as to say that, but if that comes my way, sure, why not? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a, a leader who's, uh, as I say, lived and worked all over B.C., with a very good understanding of every corner of this province because I have worked everywhere around the province over the years, and also uh, I currently live in the Lower Mainland, have a very good understanding of the politics here, and this is where we need to win 10 seats. So I think that's uh, a real factor in deciding who should be leading this party. All right, Andrew, you've been generous with your time. It's always a pleasure, sir. Thank you much. Thanks very much, and very best wishes. And uh, 
if you're in the fog like I am, it's going to be nice to have a sunny Christmas if we're lucky. Only in Vancouver, Andrew. Most of us are wishing for a white Christmas. Thank you, sir. That's Andrew Wilkinson, Vancouver Colchetta MLA and BC Liberal Leadership Contender. My thanks to him and my other guests today on Inside Politics, Vaughn Palmer, Keith Baldry, and Mike Farnworth. We'll be back for one more show before Christmas next Friday right here on Radio NL on Inside Politics. Local. First, CHNL, AM 610 in Kamloops, RadioNL.com, the Valley's first choice for local news.